This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night, July 26th, the year of our Lord, 2020. The show, as always, jam-packed. We are doing a very wide-ranging plethora, if you will, of content. You know how very rarely I use that word. We're happy to have you with us. A lot of people already in the chat. A lot of you will also watch the replay wherever you're watching and however you're watching. Please subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. And if you're listening on podcast form, thank you for that as well. Make sure to give us one of those five-star reviews. We are creeping ever closer to 400. So I figure, why not make it a 1,000? So thank you for that. A lot of you have supported us on pretty much every platform you can find us on. Uh, We, needless to say, appreciate that more than you could ever know. We've got a whole lot to get to tonight. I'm going to do, I think we already did our spotlight games. We did our our schedule draft, and that was before everything got flip-turned upside down, if you will. So we're pretty sure we're going to play conference games, and we're really sure we're going to play division games if there is indeed uh, any kind of schedule that resembles normalcy put out, and that doesn't really matter which conference you're in. So what I wanted to do tonight to open the show is we're going to look at those semi-off-the-radar games, big programs, but games that maybe aren't at the forefront of everyone's mind. They're not on the front of any kind of preview magazine. They're not in the games of the year, so to speak, that Las Vegas would release. So we're going to take a look at that. I also want to go through an article that our Chris Hummer put out, and it was Thursday, I'd say. And I didn't include it on the Thursday show because I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into it. But it's about how much college athletes will be worth when name, image, and likeness legislation is enacted and things change in the sport, which they're about to in the coming year. Fascinating. And I have, as I've told you before, and I'll tell you again tonight, sort of semi-radically changed my opinion on the impact that's going to have on the sport. And whereas I used to be sort of in the camp of, I don't want to see this, it's going to mess a whole lot of stuff up. I don't think so anymore. And I've got a lot of what I think are logic-based reasons for that. And I will present them to you and you can tell me how you feel about that. Negative recruiting was such a hot topic on the Late Kick Extra podcast last week that I'm going to talk about it tonight. And we're going to dive just a little bit deeper than the couple of minutes we spent on the podcast. And then I'm going to ask or answer rather a question that a lot of you ask about Clemson. A lot of you just flat out say, well, if Clemson were in another conference, would they ever win? Well, yeah, they would. Would they win a bunch of championships? I don't know. But we're going to answer a question towards the end of the show tonight that longtime contributor and listener of the show, Cat Train, submitted. So we're going to get to all that in due time. Let's get started with our under-the-radar games. College football, 2020, you know the marquee games, you know the spotlight games, games of the year, everyone does that kind of segment. Well, then you got to go to the next tier, and we're talking about under-the-radar games. So let's go down this list just a second. Obviously, I can't include every second-tier or third-tier game that I would love to attend or watch, but for argument's sake, let's hit four or five. Oklahoma at Iowa State is the one that comes to mind 
right off the bat. This is a game that's been very competitive as of late. And it's one of those deals, like in most games, where people focus on the quarterback position. But I think, right, Brant, are you in the chat, by the way? Yeah, so Brant's in the chat. That's why I'm leading with Iowa State tonight. Happy birthday, buddy. Don't know when your birthday actually is. But this is my present to you. Everyone focuses on quarterback in pretty much every college football game, understandably so. It's the most important position in the sport. But in this particular game here, whenever these two end up playing this year, I want you to think about the difference, potentially, the difference between quarterback experience and the quarterback edge. And how would you separate the two? Because it's obvious where the experience will lie. It's in Brock Purdy entering essentially his third full year as a starter, whereas you'll have Spencer Rattler, who is entering his first year as a starter. But I think a lot of people may look at Spencer Rattler and say, probably based solely on high school rating, oh, he's got a much higher upside. Oh, his physical potential is limitless. And I'm not denying that. I just wonder if his full potential is being reached in his first year as a starter by the time that these two play. I also am highly interested if the Big 12 conference schedule remains roughly intact, let's just assume for argument's sake that it will. I think I've already spoken about where this game lies for Oklahoma. It's not just in a vacuum. They don't play one game, wait a year, play another game. Think about this little three-game stretch as it relates to Oklahoma's playoff chances and the Big 12 championship race. They play versus Texas, then they go to Iowa State, and then they play Oklahoma State. That's three games in a row, no bye week. We don't know if the schedule is going to maintain that kind of normalcy, but if it does, that's the three-game stretch. So you're going there right after you play Texas. However, it's not exactly this bed of roses where Matt Campbell and company can lie in wait for a couple of weeks because they have at Oklahoma State the week before they play Oklahoma. So a lot of people's seasons, and really the Big 12, the championship race picture there, is going to be turned upside down one way or the other in the span of a few weeks there. So that's one game that I think is a little bit under the radar. I don't think a lot of people are talking about Oklahoma versus Iowa State but we are here on Lake Kick. We dive beneath the surface just for you. How about in the SEC? I got a couple of them here. Texas A&M at Auburn is one of them. We have spoken at length about the buy-in and the investment and the resources available in the SEC West at four different programs being what you would call tier one. I'm not saying the programs are all at tier one. We are talking about the investment level. At A&M and Auburn, those are two places where they feel like they invest emotionally and they invest financially, if you're a fan or a donor, to the degree that it takes to be a tier one program. Their facilities are to the degree that it takes to be a tier one program. They feel like they recruit at a level that it takes to either challenge the tier ones or to be a tier one program. However, neither of these are tier one programs right now. Not bad, but not tier one. Problem being, you're in a conference and in a division with a couple of them in Alabama and now LSU just won a national title 15 minutes ago. And so there just simply aren't enough chairs at the tier one table for all the programs that have tier one level investment. And these two, it's a very fascinating matchup. Jimbo has yet to beat Gus Malzahn as he's been at Texas A&M. Last time he beat him, uh, it was pretty noteworthy. It was for a national championship and he was at Florida State. So he's been at A&M now. This is going on his third year. Uh, it is perplexing how they lost in his first year at Auburn. Look at the box score and don't look at the final score, and you tell me how the home team won that game. But I digress. Final score, all that matters. And so if they beat, if Auburn being they, if they beat Texas A&M a third year in a row, 
you're probably playing, I don't know def- definitively, but you're probably playing that game if you're AM before you play Alabama and LSU. Same way with Auburn. You're probably playing AM before you play Bama or LSU. We don't know that definitively, but we're just assuming a lot of things. Side note, how weird is it here, Colin? We're in uh, late July and we're talking about the schedule in these sort of murky overtones. Oh, well, if you end up playing them here, if you end up playing them, it's like if we're going to play wiffle ball home run derby Saturday, we got to wait and see if everyone's going to be home, weather's going to be good. It's kind of how we're talking about the college football schedule right now. But listen, both of these programs, A&M, Auburn, they've got Alabama, they've got LSU type expectations. They're just not there yet. And there's not enough room for all of them to ever get there. So that is, especially if Auburn wins that game, things become really uh, fascinating and for the first time probably a little bit uncomfortable for Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. Long way from that point right now, though. The other one in the SEC before we move on is Florida at Tennessee. Now, the widely held assumption down here, and I would imagine nationally, is that the SEC Eastern Division is going to be a two-team race this year. You got Georgia, and then you got Florida, and then everyone just kind of lumps the other teams as you guys can fight over who's going to go to the Belt Bowl or whatever that bowl game's called now. And so that's not what they automatically think at Tennessee. That's not what they automatically think in Knoxville. I don't necessarily know if it's what I automatically... I cut myself there. I don't necessarily know if it's what I automatically think. I certainly think that those two programs, the aforementioned Florida and Georgia, I certainly think that that's how you would properly power rate programs in the SEC East. No particular order there. But Tennessee, if you've noticed one thing about Tennessee, even when they've been outmanned roster-wise so far, there have been these moments, whether it be their first year going to Auburn. I thought last year at that Alabama game, Tennessee at Alabama, they didn't have the roster to compete with Alabama. They did a really good coaching job. I thought in Pruitt's uh, first or second year, whenever it was, I think it was his first year, when they went to Georgia, I thought they did a really good coaching job. Point being, there have been a number of times where I've watched Tennessee and I've said, there's promise here from a coaching standpoint. Now, there have also been disasters, so let's not write those off to the side and forget about them. But there have been moments to make you say, if they ever get a comparable roster in there, and we think Pruitt can recruit, so when he has time to recruit and put together a roster that more resembles what they have in Gainesville and Athens, then look out. So I don't know if year three is lookout year is the point. I think we'll go a long way in learning that one way or the other. Whenever these two teams play, it was scheduled to be pretty early in the year. Now, either way, there's something to take away from this one that's going to matter nationally. If it's a Florida win and it's convincing, then everybody's attention rightfully turns to, okay, they just played Tennessee heads up, dusted them off pretty easily. We are completely validated in thinking that this Florida team is about to challenge Georgia, seriously challenge them for the SEC East. However, if Tennessee wins, don't care if it's by three or by 300, if they win, not only are people doubting whether Florida is going to be able to handle Georgia, they're also asking, wait, how many teams are we actually supposed to be talking about over here? And that's without the possibility that Kentucky pulls something unexpected or South Carolina pulls something unexpected. So now let's move it on to the Big Ten. Penn State at Michigan. Again, we don't certainly know where these games are going to be structured, but if they're loosely structured at the schedule, conference-wise, it's loosely structured the way it was going to be. We got Penn State at Michigan. I know a lot of people are focused on Ohio State. I didn't put an Ohio State game here because those are marquee games when they play these two respective programs. But 
we've got a kind of unique situation whenever these two finally face each other. You got a first year offensive coordinator with a more veteran presence at quarterback, that being the Penn State situation. And then you have a second year offensive coordinator in Josh Gaddis at Michigan. Don't really know what to expect at quarterback. I think a lot of people assume McCaffrey starts there. That's not a guarantee, but people assume he will. But even if he does, don't really know what you have there. But I'll tell you this, if either of those wins by 14 plus, what has happened? You know, if it's a close competitive game is what it is, uh, probably doesn't really spell a whole lot as to what's going to happen in the future for this year in the Big Ten. But, you know, if Penn State were to go in there and win by 17, or if Michigan were to do that at home by 17 plus, they probably both, if the again, if the schedule plays out as it's supposed to, they probably both still have Ohio State left later on down the line. And so what we're, really all I'm asking about the Big Ten is, number one, Who's going to step up as the number two, the clear number two in this conference this year and in the future behind Ohio State? Does this game produce the answer to that question? And number two, if it does produce a definitive answer to who's the number two, that means you've probably seen a convincing win. And if we see a convincing win by Michigan or Penn State, then the natural follow-up is, are we seeing something that we think legitimately can challenge Ohio State this year? So those are the games that we're looking at. And now I finish out West. Arizona State versus USC. Assume this one will be played in the Coliseum. Very weird sort of dynamic going on in the Pac-12 South. On one hand, you have everyone assuming Clay Helton's on the hottest of hot seats and it's just a formality at this point. It's a matter of when, not if, he will be relieved of his duties. But then again, on the other hand, I've told you, don't ever assume that's gonna happen. If you assume that it was supposed to have happened, then it probably should have already happened. Uh, You get yourself in a mess when you don't fire a guy, but you think, oh, don't worry, we'll get rid of him eventually. No, that never ends well because you have things like, oh, I don't know, a national pandemic pop up to cut your football revenue and remove the legs out from under the argument that you were going to have to fire said head coach. But that's not part of what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is on one hand, you got a bunch of folks who think, All things equal, Helton should be out at some point this year at the end of the year. And on the other hand, you got those same people painting USC as the favorite to win the Pac-12 South. It's not often that you see those dynamics in place, but you do have them right here. But here's what I want to focus on. This whole Arizona State deal, again, if the schedules hold up as they're supposed to, you've got Arizona State going in there pretty early in the year. And it gives you an opportunity in the Pac-12 to have a team push themselves to the forefront in Herm Edwards' Sun Devils that probably you're not talking about nationally until and if they do that. And I'll tell you what I'm looking at while everyone talks about Jaden Daniels, and rightfully so. He has a very, very high ceiling as a quarterback there, enters his second year as a starter. But I'll tell you, as Colin shows you the B-roll of Jaden Daniels there, and he'll get a lot of headlines... I'm not so sure that Arizona State's defense isn't going to be capable of winning a couple of games this year. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility, even with all the firepower we think USC possesses. It's not out of the realm of possibility for Herm Edwards' team to go in there early in the season, ugly things up, and win a Pac-12 game. Now, this used to be out of the realm of possibility. Win a Pac-12 game, I don't know, 20-17, 17-14. They probably have a defense that's capable of doing that this year. By the way, a little trivia question for those who have been so worried about the pandemic, they haven't really paid attention to the actual games that are going to happen this year. 
you could win a lot of trivia games if you ask people who the current defensive coordinator at Arizona State is. I don't know that a lot of people realize Marvin Lewis is now the defensive coordinator at Arizona State. Those of you who have tediously flipped through your preview magazines, you do realize that. So those are our kind of off-the-radar games that are going to matter a whole lot this year in college football. Now we move on. We have got some really good stuff here. I actually took the time to print it off. I'm not going to read it all. If you go to 24-7 Sports, Chris Hummer put out a really, really good lengthy feature this week, and it was basically asking the question, it was predicated on the question, how much is a college football player's market value if and when name, image, and likeness legislation changes, which is coming early next year, I think. So it wasn't just Chris Hummer guessing. It was him going to an organization called uh, Open Doors, and it's an athletic kind of marketing platform. They do a lot of research on this. And so basically what Chris Hummer had him do is he had him compile for his purposes a list of the top players in America right now and what their earnings potential would be. Okay, so I'm going to get to those numbers in just a second. Some of you may be surprised. Some of you may not be surprised. But I want to address a, a kind of a notion that's been thrown my way and what I used to think, but I don't think anymore. A lot of you, anytime we talk NIL, name, image, likeness, you will resort to suggesting that this is going to ruin college football. It's going to destroy the sport. I don't believe that. I used to believe portions of that. I don't believe that anymore, and I'll tell you exactly why. I had someone the other day on Twitter, I'm not going to belittle your opinion or tell you you're definitively wrong. I'll tell you I disagree with it. And uh, this gentleman said to me, when you start allowing the star players to be paid more than the role-type players and the former three-star left guard, it's going to fracture locker rooms. Now, some of you are already snickering because some of you know that these sorts of things already happen behind the scenes and locker rooms that have good culture tend to work out fine and programs whose culture suck fracture no matter what is happening or not happening. And I think that's probably the case here. If you've got good culture in place, if you've got a solid locker room, you've got good leadership, nothing's going to change with NIL. If you have a poor culture and you have a poor element in your locker room, this may very well exacerbate some of the issues. But if the issues aren't already there, I strongly doubt that this is what's going to fracture your locker room. So let me move on and let me make sure, because this is where my philosophy has changed on this. It is very important, I think, to understand what isn't coming versus what is coming. What isn't coming is a revenue sharing program wherein you're taking the proverbial pie that currently exists and it's your TV money and it's your gate revenues, your merchandising sales through licensing, all that stuff that currently constitutes your overall year-to-year -year revenue summary at a program and all of a sudden you're paying your players out of that. That is not what name, image, and likeness is about. It is not taking from the existing revenue and paying players. Important distinction here. It is allowing a new revenue stream that you had previously kind of dammed up like a river because you weren't going to allow it. All of a sudden, you open up one of those dam coffers, and now you have increased water flow, or in this case, increased revenue from a new source that previously you blocked out. 
So now, with that understanding, what do we really have? We're allowing a new revenue stream. It's going to be dictated by basic market principles, and it's still going to be grounded in a meritocracy the same way that it would be in a normal market. It's kind of what you have here. Star players are going to make more. The better players are going to go to the bigger programs and probably have more opportunity. But the thing about it is, if you don't deliver, you know, if you sign and you don't deliver, if you sign and you wash out, it's if you got off the field issues, you're probably not profiting as much as guys who keep their nose clean, keep their head on straight, work their tail off, and they're starting for Southern Cal, they're probably making more. It's still largely merit-based. So a lot of this, once you dive beneath the surface, it's easy to say what's gonna ruin the sport. How's it gonna ruin the sport? Explain to me how it's going to ruin the sport. So let's dive into this a little bit. So Chris Hummer, again, goes to Open Doors and says, how much would these players be worth this year? Let's just say calendar year, how much would guys like Justin Fields, starting quarterback, Ohio State, be able to earn off of his likeness and image? About $1.34 million. That's what the current starting quarterback at Ohio State would be worth, again, according to Open Doors. Trevor Lawrence, star quarterback, starting quarterback at Clemson, about one23 Spencer Rattler has never, well, he's taken, he has not taken meaningful starting snaps as of yet at Oklahoma. He is about an $800,000 earner. Now, I think a lot of these numbers are low, and I'm going to tell you why in just a second. For instance, I'm going down this list. If you think Jamie Newman's not worth $100,000 yet at Georgia, you're crazy. Don't care that he hasn't taken a snap. He is the presumed starting quarterback at the University of Georgia. He's worth more than eighty-eight grand. I'd still take the 88, but I'm just telling you, he's probably worth more than that. So one of the quotes, and you can go read the full piece over on 247sports.com. Blake Lawrence is the CEO of Open Doors. It says his team calculated these numbers by examining what pro athletes with similar social media followings and engagement levels have made in the marketplace. Here's the part I want you to pay close attention to. Open Doors also adjusted its formula based on the number of sponsorship dollars available in college athletics compared to professional sports it examined. This is where the misread is. It's not their fault. They only have the data to go on that currently exists. But I want to stress something to you. This is where the floodgates are going to open here, and this is where it's going to level the playing field a whole lot more than you're afraid it's just going to distance the haves from the have-nots. Sponsorship dollars previously available in college athletics do not equal sponsorship dollars that will be available now that more people are at the table. Here's what I mean by that. If you're watching on YouTube, Colin is showing you all of these stadium shots from SEC games. The SEC has, among other networks, its primary TV deal currently with CBS. And CBS shows the SEC Saturday game of the week. And when you watch those games, they frequently go to commercial breaks. That's how you keep the lights on. That's how you pay the bills. And you'll notice all kind of big brands, Dr. Pepper, Aflac. But it's just what I said, really big brands. Because those brands, the marquee, globally recognized brands, those are really the only ones who can afford in this competitive environment where the ad spots are so limited. You only have so many games. Those are really the only brands that can afford to win those bidding wars. So now I want you to imagine that you're a business owner. You're a CEO. It's not Aflac. It's not Dr. Pepper. But, you know, let's say you own a supplement company. You do pretty well for yourself. You're not turning billions of dollars a year in profit, but you're doing pretty well for yourself. How would this 
change your approach because you're probably sitting at home on Saturdays and knowing full well your clientele is the 18 to 52 year old male demographic, same ones, the Venn diagram would just overlap, same people who are watching these games. You think that me, the CEO and the owner of a mid-level supplement company wouldn't love to advertise on the CBS Saturday afternoon game of the week? Of course I would. I just can't afford the ad spot. Dr. Peppers, they can write their checks. They can print their money. I don't have that capability. Doesn't mean I wouldn't love to be part of that market share. And so now new opportunities present themselves. So now let's continue. There's a misconception, I think, and I've spoken about this before. I think the big misconception is that this whole deal, when players can benefit off their name, image, and likeness, and it becomes part of the recruiting strategy for major programs, the worry is that Ohio State's parked there in Columbus, Ohio. They have unlimited resources. Alabama has unlimited resources. Southern Cal's in, obviously, Southern California. They have unlimited resources. They're in these, in some cases, these huge cities, major media markets. They have unlimited potential, and all these things are true. But what you're scared of is that it's just going to put these few programs on this rocket ship, and they're going to go into a different stratosphere, and no one else other than those few are going to be able to compete. I think it's false, but let me ask you this. How does the sport look right now? How many programs are competing right now? How many of them, as we enter the season, would you be willing to call a legitimate national championship contender? Not playoff, not conference, championship contender. Because once you get past the programs, maybe outside of Southern Cal, once you get past the usual suspects, the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the Clemsons, the Oklahomas, Georgia, LSU, once we get past about a half a dozen of them, you don't need much more breath to finish the list. I'll just put it like that. So everyone claiming it's going to do that to the sport, I would tell you, no, 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 that's the current state of affairs. I'm not sure if you think that's bad for the sport, I'm not sure it can get any worse. So I think the default setting here is to realize the sport's already insanely top heavy. So now, let me explain to you where the beauty of conference television deals change this whole landscape. Think about what we've talked about. I know this is a lot. Think, well, maybe for you it's not. For me it is. So let's follow along closely because let me tell you what my strategy would be and let me tell you why my strategy I think is going to be the strategy of a lot of mid-level corporations, mid-level companies out there that see this as the window to get their product finally visible in the world of college athletics whereas they never could before because they were boxed out from being able to purchase what you would call classical advertising. And the players were off limits because the NCAA forbade them capitalizing on their name, image, and likeness. So you couldn't have any side endorsement deals. Now you can. Here's what my strategy would be. If I were, let's say I go back to my hypothetical role as the CEO of a mid-level, kind of recognizable supplement brand and health brand. What I would do is I would look at Alabama and I'd say, they're, they're going to have no problem here. Ohio State's going to have no problem. But you know what? Alabama doesn't have a TV deal. The SEC does. And that means that Alabama's on national TV 12 games a year. But so is Arkansas. So is Kentucky. So is Missouri. And you know what? A lot of people watch those games too. And you know what else? Arkansas plays a lot of the biggest programs in America. So by default, a lot of eyeballs are on those games. You could say the exact same thing about Michigan State. You could say the same thing about Maryland. All of these network TV deals now come into play to where you're guaranteed, if you're playing on those teams, you're on national TV 10, 11, or 12 weeks out of the year. 
I'm looking to get my brand visible. So I'm not going to Alabama. I'm not going to Ohio State. They don't need my money. But if I've got all of a sudden on the side a $400,000 a year, let's call it an endorsement budget, I'm going to the University of South Carolina or Arizona State or Kentucky, and I'm putting portions of that money. I'm kind of a lobbyist at this point. I'm putting portions of that money into their recruiting fund. Call it whatever I need to to skirt the rules, but I'm telling you this is the money I'm giving you to take on the recruiting trail. You don't put it in the kid's pocket. It's not like dropping a sack of cash like the old days. What you're telling kids that you recruit is you, upon signing a letter of intent with us, automatically qualify for a downside guarantee $15,000 per year endorsement deal with JP Supplement Company. You tell all your four-star kids that. You tell all your five-star kids that. And so now all of a sudden, a new strategy emerges where South Carolina just partnered with JP Supplement Company. What if they have 10 more deals like that? Do you see all of a sudden how the coffer that you have to work from is starting to fill up and it's starting to get really competitive by default of you being able to play all your games on national TV and you're still a pretty big deal. You may not be Alabama, but you're still South Carolina, so you got some tradition to sell. You got some history to sell. You got some inventory to sell. That's how that's going to work. And I'm telling you, whereas right now, a lot of folks are worried that this is just gonna benefit the very few at the expense of the many. I don't think that's how it's gonna work. I wanted to read one more little excerpt from here before we move on. I want you to listen to this and then I want you to tell me who does this sound like. The, this, is, uh, this is the, um, I wanna make sure I get the name right. The organization that Chris Hummer interviewed. This is them talking again. The size of a program's social media following has a huge impact on a player's earnings potential. How big your footprint is digitally on the social channels really has a lot to do with how much earnings potential your players are going to have. Fields and Lawrence, for example, are national names, but their value is boosted by Ohio State and Clemson's digital footprint that will help them grow their brand with targeted videos and posts across social media platforms with millions of followers. Now we circle back to a question we had a couple of weeks ago about LSU's graphics department last year. Do you remember how big a leap digitally LSU took last year? Some of you don't care about this, but those of you who are active on Twitter, Instagram, you saw LSU was putting out these amazing videos, and you saw LSU was lapping the field in the graphics department. They were next level. There was a move that was made in the offseason. It didn't make front page headlines, but some of us in this industry took notice. The University of Southern California came after LSU's digital video guys, came after some of them, and signed them. Now that sounds like it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal because of what I just read to you. Your ability to separate on the social platforms is directly connected to your ability to give maximum earnings potential to the players that you sign, which goes right into your recruiting portfolio when you go into their living room. This is certainly not the last time we're going to talk about this, but this is the way that the industry is changing. And let me lastly put it to you like this. Everyone loves to swear that recruiting has been such a dirty, filthy industry forever. We're going to talk about it in a second, actually. And everyone swears that every time they miss out on a recruit, it's because fill-in-the-blank university dropped 80 grand into uh, their dad's church the night before signing day. And um, it happens. So I'm not telling you it doesn't. However, 
I want you to consider, if that's one of the big problems you have with college athletics, the kind of seedy underbelly of illegal benefits on the recruiting trail, you need to uh, consider how this may recalibrate the system. When we can do a lot of that stuff legally now, what kind of advantage do those programs who only benefited by skirting the rule book, how do they survive now? Maybe it weeds out a lot of those dirty players that you love to frown on so much. Just something to think about. Let's move on, Colin. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Speaking of negative recruiting, speaking of the seedy underbelly of college football, we had a question on the Late Kick Extra podcast last week, which we release on Wednesday, and we've gotten a ton of great traction and feedback on that. So keep it coming. Keep the five-star reviews coming, and thank you for that. And the question was very simple. It was, how prevalent is negative recruiting? We got a lot of traction on it, so much so that I thought I'd go a little bit further in depth, share some anonymous, of course, stories with you tonight on just some feedback I've gotten about different kinds of negative recruiting. Because the first thing I think we have to ask ourselves is what do we consider negative recruiting? You may be different than me, for example. The mere mention of another school when I'm in your living room, is that negative? Or do I have to have a more negative targeted pitch that zeroes in on one team for it to be negative. I wanted to state, by the way, Colin and I were talking about this before the show. You know, every rundown I send Colin in the afternoons, it includes the elements that I'm going to need for a segment. Normally, it's really easy. You know, if we're talking about uh, Michigan running backs, Colin knows that we're going to run Michigan offensive B-roll. Well, for this one, I just put three question marks and I said, who knows? Because I don't really know what kind of B-roll or elements we should be using now. So Colin said, I'm just going to run random stuff and you make sure you tell them that we're not trying to subtly suggest that one program is doing something because we're showing video of them as we talk about negative recruiting. So Colin's caveat included now, pay no attention to the specific B-roll that he runs here. Let's continue. Negative recruiting. What is actually negative recruiting? The depth chart is the most common form of negative or targeted recruiting, but you tell me what you think is dirty here. If I bring a depth chart into a kid's living room and you and I are heads up for this kid, it's a, it's a four-star defensive end from Sarasota, Florida, and he's down to me and you, and I take your depth chart into his living room, and it's not falsified, it's accurate, and you're just loaded at his position, and I'm not, and I show him that, is that negative? Conversely, I think we can all agree, if I take your depth chart into his living room and I count all of your early enrollees, 
on your depth chart, but I don't put them on mine. And a lot of guys that we know are leaving for the draft are still on your depth chart, but all my draft departures are gone and it makes it look a lot easier to get playing time at my school than your school. Yeah, that's probably frowned upon. That's probably a little bit more in the way of negative recruiting. So the old falsified roster, that's probably the most common way, but quicker playing time. I want to circle back to that in just a second, because I think that kind of is counterintuitive and works in the opposite way that it's intended a lot of times. Now, the other way that's very commonly heard about, always anonymously, is the trafficking and coaching rumors. Every December, if you're a major program, every December, your staff, someone on your staff, probably multiple members on your staff, up to and possibly including the head coach, are rumored to be on the move. They're either going to be fired, they're on shaky ground, or they've done such a good job that maybe they're going to get promoted and get hauled off to another university or uh, get you know an offensive coordinator position somewhere, whereas right now they're your wide receivers coach. So that's always happening, uh, and it's really why it's important to commit to the school and not the coach, because no one's staff stays in place four years. Clemson's probably the one that's come the closest to it, and their entire coaching staff doesn't even stay intact for four years at a time. But this is usually done late in the process. My experience in hearing about this is you don't, float the rumor that so-and-so's linebackers coach is going to take the defensive coordinator position at so-and-so, you don't do it in November because that gives the opposition enough time to dispel the rumor. No, what you want to do is you want to float it out there about 96 hours, 72 hours, meteorologically, 96, 72 hours before signing day to where it sort of muddies the water if it's close and maybe that's what pushes you over the top. Is that dirty? Eh, maybe, probably, kinda, but I think a lot of people do it. Now, here's the one that I think is used a lot more than people realize. Campus safety. This one works really well with moms. If you can convince the mother of a recruit, recruit doesn't really care so much. Most of the time, dad doesn't really care so much, but if you can get in mom's ear and you can convince mom that, uh, mom, I, I don't... Listen, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I know you said that uh, State University leads for him right now. Have you seen the crime statistics since 2014 from that city? I, here, you can look at it. You know, it's on paper. It must be true. Um, I don't necessarily know if I'd want to send Junior into that kind of environment. He could be doing everything right. And then all of a sudden, one day, just, just be in the wrong part of town. And there you go. I know of one very high-profile recruitment from very close to where I grew up that was swayed using this tactic. Something happened in one town. Uh, it was very unfortunate, but it was an isolated incident. But the coaches at the other program, needless to say, pounced on that. And they convinced mom that that place is not safe. You can't be sending your kid there. And it worked. This kid plays in the NFL now. And it worked. So is that dirty? Mm. Yeah, in that case it was, because it was kind of falsified, it was misrepresented, but it worked. Uh, the fun versus structure, that whole thing. We have fun here. They're all about business there. You're not going to have fun if you go there. We're all about fun. No program that's winning at an insanely high level is about anything other than structure. Every one of them is about structure. Even some of the ones that aren't good are all about structure. They just have bad structure. It's built on a flimsy foundation. Everyone's about structure. 
And so you see this applied a lot of times if you know you're behind in a recruitment or if you're recruiting against one of the perennial powerhouse programs. A lot of folks use this against Alabama. A lot of folks use it against Ohio State. It's, you know, they're all business there. They don't really have fun. We have fun here. Uh, I don't normally see that one work out a whole lot with the guys who are wired the way that those programs would want you to be wired to begin with. But you could also manipulate stats. And you can really do this with anything. Anyone, if you're a receiver, for example, I can convince you and I can cherry pick stats all day long that we, based on these numbers, are going to throw the ball more than they do. That stuff's easy to do and that's done pretty much by everyone. And I don't really necessarily know if I would consider that as dirty or negative as some of the other things that we're talking about here. But here's the whole thing. I wanted to circle back to the, the promise of easier playing time a quicker path to playing time, or maybe in some cases just outright promising playing time. A lot of times I have found, talking to some of the bigger staffs lately, a lot of times that backfires. A lot of times it's a natural filtration process. There's this reverse psychological approach that a lot of the perennial big boys take when the opposition is trying to tell kids, well, you're not going to start there. You're going to get buried on the depth chart because look at all these other good players they have. I can tell you, a lot of those big programs, when you try that, they go to the kid's living room and the kid says, is all this true? And they say, yep, it's true. We do have all those good players. And we're not going to stop recruiting players at your position if you sign here. It's that whole you know, Nick Saban to Julio Jones once upon a time, I'm going to win with you, but I'm also going to win without you. It's sort of balls in your court. We'd love to have you, but we'll get someone just as good just like that if you don't come here. That scares some kids off. But the thing about it is, if you are an Alabama, if you are a Clemson, if you are an Ohio State and you're trying to cruise at the top of the sport every year, the kind of guys that you have to have on your roster by default are the kind of guys that are attracted to the challenge, that are attracted to the competition, and the ones that you were probably going to end up excommunicating from your program two years in are the ones who are scared away by competition to begin with. They naturally gravitate towards the easier road. So you talk to some of these assistant coaches and they tell you, we don't even fight the whole depth chart thing anymore. If they're telling the truth, we don't even sugarcoat it for kids. You know, we use that as a natural filter so that we find out whether a kid's mentally possessing what it takes to play here in his junior or senior year in high school, as opposed to signing him, getting on campus, and then he flakes out two years into his college career, because that's what we call a wasted scholarship spot. So I like that question. I wanted to go a little bit further in depth on it. That was a good one. Now let's wrap it up. And let's wrap it up by talking about a program that we don't talk about as much as the other major programs on the show. Not because they're not great, but it's because, you know, you're in the middle of a season. How often is Clemson challenged? So we have to make up reasons sometimes to talk about Clemson. Well, Cat Train gave us one. Cat Train is, don't even know if he's a guy or a girl. I just, I don't know if this is, shall we say, a guy or a girl. I have my suspicion, obviously. But they, Cat Train, submitted a question for the Late Kick Extra podcast. But I said, you know what? I'm not waiting for the podcast. Let's just do this on the Sunday night show. So we'll wrap up with this. You can think right along with me and you can tell me in the comment section what you would or how you would respond to this. It's kind of layered. So let's dive in. Cat Train says, Clemson has made four of the six college football playoff championship games. They've won two of them. Alabama's also won two of the last six. They've played in four of them. Starting in 2015, if we gave Clemson Alabama's schedule, 
do you think they would still have won two national titles? And do you still think that they would have played for four championships? I feel like there have been many great SEC teams that Alabama's had to take down in order to get to the playoff. Meanwhile, Clemson pretty much gets to sit back and practice for the playoff all season long while Bama has to take on more obstacles. Clemson has been for real, don't get me wrong, but they've been blessed with an extremely weak ACC. There's no doubt they'd still be elite, but would their trophy case have ended up the same if they were given Alabama's schedule every year? Here's how I'm going to unpack this. If, in this hypothetical world where everyone's right and everyone's wrong simultaneously because you can't know definitive answers, but if we take Clemson back to 2015, we drop them in the SEC, they got, they got Bama's road. Here's what I know, or I think I know, wouldn't change. Here's what would not be negatively impacted. Their staff would still be their staff. Their culture would still be their culture. Both of those things have worked to a high degree for them. And their recruiting would still be their recruiting. They already recruit heads up with the SEC, and they do a pretty darn good job of it. They win their fair share of battles. So those things I don't think would be impacted. So what I'm telling you is I think the makeup of their program would be roughly the same, which means they would be a contender every single year. Now, what would be impacted here? You can't know for sure how this would contribute to more wins or more losses. I can tell you pretty certainly the status of their roster and the overall health of their roster would suffer more, or the odds go up that it would suffer more, by playing better caliber athletes to a greater degree more times per year. That's just a given. You probably have more injuries. Can't state it definitively, but you probably would. And also, you would have to do away with this idea that in late September, you're already talking about peaking at the right time. You don't get to wait and peak in, say, the SEC West until December or January, or else you're going to be playing in a mid-tier bowl game, peaking. you got to be ready to go earlier than late September, early October. I'm not saying they'd be incapable of it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that would potentially be negatively impacted. So I think they'd still be favored in 10 or more, 11 or more games every year that have a better roster than most of the teams they played. What I would be interested to see, and here's where the rubber would meet the road, and this would ultimately answer your question one way or the other. There is a difference in getting a nice, solid win against North Carolina State and Wake Forest versus getting a nice, solid win against Texas A&M and Mississippi State. You'd probably still pick Clemson to beat Mississippi State and Texas A&M. Those rosters in any given year are far more littered with future Sunday bodies, guys that are going to play in the NFL, than your NC State Wake Forest rosters are. The collisions don't get any less violent. Your training room is no less full on Monday morning just because you beat them by 17 points. That is the difference in playing a schedule like Alabama plays right now, in their division at least, versus what Clemson would play. So if I dropped them there, they'd have to deal with that. Don't know really what impact it would have on their record. But if I look back at 2015, for example, that's the first year that you mentioned in this string of years here, Clemson goes to the national championship game. They had one possession wins against Louisville, Notre Dame, South Carolina, but they got the job done. And so they go to the playoff and they get to the final and they lose. The next year, <clears throat> this is a year they end up winning the national championship. They had a six-point win against Auburn. They had a six-point win against Troy at home. They had a seven-point win against NC State. They lost outright to Pitt. And they beat Virginia Tech by seven. But then they won the national championship. So the question is, would they have been able to play at that level 
and still even have a shot at winning a championship? Well, I guess my follow-up is, if they knew ahead of time that they were playing Alabama or LSU or A&M instead of Troy, NC State, do we get the same caliber performance? Because here's the unknowable part in this entirely unknowable question. My guess is no, they probably haven't won the same amount that they've won. But then again, if Dabo was in the SEC, maybe he's built everything different because he's built to his surroundings right now. They peak later in the year and they take time to build up to it and they play the roster accordingly because they know they can. Well, if they didn't know they could, then it would not take a genius to figure out they'd probably handle things a little bit differently. So maybe his program would be wired differently. Maybe they would have injected a different kind of DNA that would be tailor-made to surviving their current situation in the SEC in this theoretical scenario, as opposed to their former being in the ACC. It's the best way I can answer that. We went really long tonight. What time is it? Colin, it's past our bedtime. We got to get out of here. We got to go eat. Uh, We really appreciate you being tuned in. Hey, quick programming note here. I meant to say this at the beginning, but I guess I saved it for the end. We are soon going to three shows per week. That third show will be on Tuesday nights. We normally wait. I say normally. It's our first year doing this at 24-7, but I've done this independently for a little while now. Normally wait to get into August. Camps open up. And so we will soon be doing that. More information on that as it becomes available. I also wanted to challenge you to do this. You know, I opened up my inbox, my Twitter DMs, the comment section here for submissions for the Late Kick Extra podcast. I'm also going to ask you this week and over the next couple of weeks, any thoughts you have about the show as we sort of get ready to revamp it and touch it up, put some lipstick on it for the season, any suggestions you have for frequent segments that you want to see? topics that you want touched on, different odds and ends that you would love to see added into the show that you haven't seen yet or you would love to see more of, it's your show. So I'm asking you, help us build it for the season. Let us know exactly what you want. Twitter DMs are open, at LateKickJosh. Email inbox is open, joshpate706 at gmail.com. And if you missed that, Colin's got it right there on the bottom of the screen for you on the YouTube live section. So Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Five-star reviews. That's really all we need from you. And everything is free of charge. Thanks for joining us. We will see you again same time Thursday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. Until then, for Director Colin, for Aaron, for Tani, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great and safe week, and God bless. Thank you.